Welcome to Radio Who, What, Why. I'm Jeff Sheckman. We hear over and over in our domestic political debates about the need to improve America's infrastructure, that to do so is good for business and in the big picture, good for the economy and the projection of America as a global leader. Certainly LaGuardia Airport and the 45 years it took to build the Second Avenue subway in New York are not good indications. On the other side of the world, few countries have repeatedly taken on infrastructure projects as big as those taken on by China. From the movement of water to the transportation of people, the Chinese have seen infrastructure not only as good for its internal economy, but as a true projection of pride and power. Now these projects have pierced the Chinese border in the form of China's One Belt, One Road project. The question is, has China gone a railroad bridge too far? We're going to talk about this with my guest, Will Doig. Will is a journalist that has covered urban development. He's been an editor at the Open Society Foundation, Next City, and the Daily Beast. He created and wrote Salon's weekly Dream City column and has been a repeated guest on NPR's Talk of the Nation. His work has appeared in dozens of magazines, and his new book, just out from Columbia Global Reports, is High Speed Empire, Chinese Expansion and the Future of Southeast Asia, Will Doy, thanks so much for joining us on Radio Who, What, Why. Thanks for having me. It's great to have you here at the heart of what you talk about in terms of this Chinese expansion of infrastructure is this One Belt, One Road project. Explain to our listeners first what that is. Sure. So uh, One Belt, One Road is, um, well, in short, it's China's plan to cover half of the world in Chinese-built infrastructure, uh, airports, seaports, uh, highways, energy corridors, um, pretty much everything you could imagine. And it all kind of forms a network of supply chains and transportation routes, all of it kind of flowing back to China. Um, so the two parts of it are the belt and the road. Uh, the belt part is the land routes that cover Asia and go all the way through the Middle East uh, and ultimately to Europe. And the road is actually the maritime uh, portion of it, which was a series of shipping lanes that um, go you know, through the Pacific, the Atlantic, uh, the Indian Ocean, um, and hook up with seaports all over the world. Uh, it's at heart an economic strategy, um, but it's also a stand-in for Chinese foreign policy in a lot of ways. I mean, China doesn't really separate those two spheres nearly as much as the United States does. And so, um, you know, in a way, this project is China's way of reaching out to the world. China is a country that doesn't form traditional alliances in the same way that many other countries do. They prefer, they prefer, uh, prefer partnerships, um, and often those partnerships are based on trade, uh, and so this One Belt, One Road project is really a mechanism for them doing that. This notion of, of using infrastructure as a projection of global power, talk a little bit about how that's evolved in, in the Chinese consciousness and really in the current Chinese foreign policy. So uh, there's a couple of ways that China uses infrastructure to project power. One of them is it's really its soft power mechanism. I mean, Chinese culture doesn't penetrate the rest of the world in the same way that, say, American culture does. Um, you know, there's not a lot of countries consuming a lot of Chinese movies or music. Um, but what they do really admire about China is the way that it builds. And so China has chosen to use infrastructure as a way of bolstering its soft power. Um, it uses it to create 
friendly relationships with other countries um, and uh, offer them, you know, infrastructural projects that they never could have afforded to build on their own. But the other way that it uses infrastructure to project power is really in a more literal sense. Um, one of the criticisms of One Belt, One Road is that China is partnering with much poorer countries to build huge mega projects in those countries. And they're not doing it with grants. Often they're loaning those countries Chinese money to build the projects with the expectation that those countries will ultimately pay that money back to China. The criticism of this, of course, is that it puts those smaller, poorer countries in a position where they can't pay back the money and then find themselves indebted to China in a way that makes them more beholden to China's wishes. So when I say that One Belt, One Road is inseparable from Chinese foreign policy, that's really what I'm talking about, is uh, a, a sort of dynamic wherein China creates a relationship with a poorer country, puts that country in a financial position that's somewhat untenable, and then that forces that poorer country to support China's geostrategic aims. And why are these poorer countries, and Laos is certainly a good example because it's, it's really the first place that this railroad that you spend time talking about is going into, why are these countries so willing to go along? Well, for a couple of reasons, and some of them are very legitimate reasons. You know, for a country like Laos, um, this is what China is offering, which is a modern state-of-the-art railway running all the way through the country. This is a, a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity for a country like Laos. They could never build something like this on our own. And you have to remember that Laos is the only country in Southeast Asia that's completely landlocked. They have no access to the sea, which is part of the reason why they've lagged so far behind their neighbors in terms of development. So there's been a lot of talk about the railway turning Laos from a landlocked to a land-linked country. This would give Laos more access to Thailand below. Um, it would give uh, it access to markets further down the Southeast Asian Peninsula. And that could be a good thing for Laos. Um, but then there are other reasons that they might be going forward with the project that are you know, uh, maybe less scrupulous. Um, and one of those reasons is corruption. I mean, Laos is an incredibly corrupt country. A few years ago, it made the, you know, the top 10 list of the international corruption rankings. I think now it's kind of clawed its way all the way up into the 30s, but it's still uh, a place where the way deals get done with the government are often unsavory. Um, you know, it's, there's, there's no smoking gun, of course, but uh, the general consensus among people who study these projects is that the way the railway deal got done with China was not entirely above board. You have to remember that this is China's railway. I mean, China wants it more than anybody, including the countries that it's actually running through. So if China wants to get it done, they will get it done. And if they'll deal with a country like Laos in a way that, you know, might not always be, um, you know, completely above board, then that's the way that they will get it done. Why is China so anxious to get this done? Is it for the geopolitical influence? Is it for the economic impact? Or is it that they see something down the road in terms of the potential need for this 10, 20, 40 years from now? I think the answer is really all of the above. Um, I mean, China has a lot of different goals with this project, and those goals vary depending on the country that it's running through. So, for instance, 
you know, when you take a country like, um, you know, Myanmar, uh, if China was to build a country to Myanmar's west coast, that would essentially give China access to the Indian Ocean. People have talked about China turning Myanmar into its own California. Um, so seaports, that's a big reason. Um, other reasons are to get access to markets in these other countries, or maybe get access to resources that they could use the railway to then pull back into China. Um, and one of the reasons is that they actually just want to develop the area along the railway. It's interesting. We think of South of Southeast Asia as such a sort of booming, dynamic region, and it is. But what we forget is that these are still very rural countries. Most of them only have one big city. And then those cities are separated by these huge expanses of, of completely undeveloped land or mostly undeveloped land in between them. China would like to urbanize a lot of those areas as it builds the railway um, because urbanization is what China does. They build cities. They love real estate development. And when you build a city, you create a new market. Maybe that market could then buy Chinese goods. Um, so I think that there's a lot of different objectives, um, both for this particular project and for One Belt, One Road in general. Uh, it's why the Chinese government often talks about One Belt, One Road in such vague terms, because you can't really put a, a pin on exactly what they're trying to do with it. Um, but I think that it, it achieves, achieves a, an array of objectives for them. And, and maybe the most basic is that I think projects like this have become sort of calling cards for China's unstoppability. I mean, if China does, this is like a too big to fail project for China. They want to make sure that this comes off because they know the world is watching and they have presented themselves as the new global developer for the 21st century. And this is an early test case for that. Given how much overbuilding and overdevelopment has taken place in China recently, how do they look at this in that context? It's a good point. I mean, China really has sort of overbuilt at home. It's part of what has propelled their economy so successfully over the last many years. Um, and But what it's really it's done to them is it's given them more airports, more condominiums, more factories, more of a lot of things than they actually need there. And so they're a little bit overbuilt at home. And one of the reasons uh, that's been stated for the One Belt, One Road initiative is to basically give China other countries in which to pour its concrete. I mean, these projects are usually built by Chinese companies using Chinese labor and Chinese technology. So when you think about the scope of these projects, how big they are, how many countries they're occurring in, how many people are needed to build them, all the technology involved, um, it adds up to just a, a huge economic stimulus. And with that economic stimulus flowing directly back into Chinese companies, um, that is sort of what China is counting on to keep its economy humming along. Now, this has been one of the big criticisms of the project, too, because a lot of people feel that, you know, China should be using local labor or local technology or local companies. Um, China would come back to that and say, that's a nice idea. <laughs> but in a country like Laos, you know, where are we going to find that labor? I mean, for instance, Laos is a country where, you know, a, a large po portion of the um, population works as subsistence farmers. It basically means they wake up, they grow their own food, they eat it, and they go to bed. Um, these aren't people who are used to working on, you know, uh, timetables and schedules and, and punching cards and showing up to work at 9 a.m. Um, another reason is that, you know, this is a very highly technical project. Um, you might need 500 electricians to build this railway. There aren't 500 electricians in Laos. Um, so China would say those are the reasons, although I think at base, the, the major reason that they like to do it themselves is to funnel as much of the profits back to Chinese companies as possible. How much of it is also, as part of their, their foreign policy, a projection of wanting to project the success 
of their form of kind of authoritarian capitalism? Um, that's an interesting question. I mean, you know, <laughs> people often are surprised that China has not trended more democratic as its markets have opened up. That's sort of the, the concept that we have here in the West, which is, you know, as you liberalize economically, you will democratize politically. Um, and China hasn't really done that. I mean, clearly it's going in sort of the other direction over the last few years. Um, but I'm not sure why we always assume that's the way it will happen, because in a lot of ways, the authoritarian political system and the liberal economic system have worked really well in tandem for China. I mean, if you can really think up those two systems and get them running parallel, then you have an economy that can grow in a way that, for instance, the United States economy could never grow um, because we have a political system that often works against the economy for you know, various reasons, for political interests. So I think that China has found that this has worked for them so far and they're going to keep going with it. And the Chinese people seem to be tolerating it, I think, because the economy is growing so quickly. Um, and it is a very proud nationalistic culture that uh, sees this as working for them and, um, and would like to uh, support it. Of course, in a pluralistic democratic system, it takes 45 years to build a 17-mile subway. That's true, and sometimes we wish that we had China's way of doing things <laughs> at least a little bit more just so that we could get to the Upper East Side without having to walk four long blocks in the winter. <laughs> Talk a little bit about the countries that, that you visited that are part of this high-speed rail that, that's part of One Belt, One Road, and whether or not this has gone too far, whether this project is, you say, too big to fail, but maybe even too big for China to see it through. I think that the way it will happen is that parts of it will work and parts of it won't. So we talk about it as if it's one contiguous rail line from China's southern border all the way to Singapore. And that's certainly the way that China would like us to see it because it sounds good. Um, but I think what will really happen is that this will evolve piecemeal in different countries down the line and that maybe it never will entirely connect. Maybe there will no, not be a one-seat ride all the way from Kunming to Singapore, um, which nobody really wants anyway. There's no reason to take a, a train all the way from China to Singapore. Um, but if they can sort of build out parts of the network, that would have its own um, – you know, its own benefit. I mean, for instance, one of the parts of the network is uh, a high-speed train that is being built between Kuala Lumpur in Malaysia to Singapore. Now, technically, this isn't even being planned by China. China is just bidding for the contract to build this project that's already been planned entirely between the governments of Malaysia and Singapore. And yet China sees this as part of the project anyway, because they feel that if this railway becomes a reality, it could benefit them in some way. So... It's interesting to see how different countries are sort of using their own leverage um, against, you know, to sort of like get what they can from China um, while not, you know, absorbing too much Chinese influence. Um, you know, I think for a country like Laos, they really don't have much leverage at all other than ge their geography, which is, you know, China wants a way south. Um, but if you talk about a country like Malaysia, you know, they have more influence um, and can sort of push back harder. And so, Depending on which country you're talking about, I think China's sort of chances of success are very different. Mm -hmm. Is there a timeline to any of this, or is it kind of open-ended? Um, there's really no specific timelines for the entire project. I think that there, you know, China wants to finish it quickly for sure. And so I think, you know, the only part of this particular project that is really 
happening on the ground right now is the part that's in Laos. And China probably does have timelines out there for it. I'm not sure exactly what they are. They're probably pretty quick. Um, you know, they've done a lot of work in the last year. Um, if you look at, you know, the construction that's going on up by the Chinese border, they're tunneling through mountains, they're starting to lay track. Um, I think that they would like to to make it happen quickly, but I also think that you know, China thinks in centuries. I mean, this is a country that really is playing the long game um, in a way that a lot of other countries don't. And so when they talk about one belt, one road, um, they're talking about, you know, a, a, a project that scope will, will go on for decades. It'll go on, you know, in China's mind long after we're all gone. Um, and I think that that is the reason why they create projects like this that seem so kind of surreally large to us. I mean, for instance, when you talk about, um, you know, China's ghost cities, a lot of people have sort of noted that China builds these huge cities, but they don't actually have any people in them. Well, we forget that China does things differently than we do. They are building these cities from scratch and then expecting them to fill up on kind of 20 or 30 year timelines. Um, so they don't mind losing some money and uh, losing some time on the front end, I think, as long as you know, there's the expectation that eventually these projects will come to benefit a future China, because they see themselves as the next world superpower, and they are. Um, and they're kind of setting the stage right now for that to happen. They're not too worried about making it all happen tomorrow, surpassing you know, the U.S. immediately. Um, I think they're biding their time. They know that it's going to happen, and, uh, and, and, and they're okay with, with giving it time to unfold. How much of this, though, is totally dependent on the economy going forward in one direction? And how much does it take into account the realities of recession or worse on, in the global framework? I think that's the question on everybody's mind. I mean, and, and there may be ways that China is confronting that question internally that we don't hear about. Um, but I think, you know, it's definitely the, the, the one belt, one boat road backlash is in full swing. I mean, if you read the headlines about the projects uh, lately, you know, I think a few weeks ago, the Washington Post had a headline that was something like China's one trillion dollar mistake or something like that. Um, so it's become, you know, quite sort of popular to think, oh, could this entire thing collapse if China's economy doesn't keep moving along? Um, and I suppose that's possible. Um, but again, you have to remember that this isn't like one cohesive plan. I mean, this is really more of a notion. Um, China wants the world to sort of, you know, gradually absorb Chinese development more and more. Um, but there's no blueprint that has, you know, a bunch of rail lines and highways leading out from China and timetable saying, well, this one will be built this year and this one will be done by this year. Um, it's more of just China's feeling about how it uh, exists in the 21st century and how it will project itself. Um, so, you know, as far as their economy going up or down, I think they're not too worried about that. Um, the projects can always sort of be put on pause. Many of them have been put on pause for various reasons. Uh, they can be started up again later. Um, you know, as long as there's no real timetables or benchmarks, then um, it gives them a lot of room to sort of say, no, things are still on track. Talk about how good they are at doing this and how their skills and talents to do it have evolved in terms of, of the real estate, the development, the building, all the aspects of this. 
Uh, I think that they're actually doing pretty well. I think they're doing better than they get credit for a lot of the time. Um, you know, I mean, we love it's, <laughs> it's criticizing China is very popular in the West. And I think sometimes part of that has to do with our own insecurity about the fact that they are sort of growing to match us economically. But really, you know, you it's easy to forget that China just got into the international development game, what, like 10 years ago. Um, they're really new at this. And considering that they're so new, I think that they have been learning pretty quickly. You know, the United States has been doing this for, for decades. And I'm sure that we had a learning curve when we first started. Um, when China, you know, when they learn, I think that what they're learning is sort of learning how to get the job done. Um, and if that means changing the way that they do things, then they will do that. So, for instance, China gets criticized a lot for not respecting human rights when they build some of these projects or not respecting the environment. Um, they're starting to change the way that they, you know, confront those issues a little bit, not because they suddenly care about human rights or care about the environment, but because the countries that they're working in do and are demanding that China, you know, say, okay, if we displace this community of people for our railway, then we will build them another village somewhere else. Or if we, you know, drain this lake to build this, this project, then, you know, we will mitigate the environmental impact of that somehow. Um, and I think that they're starting to do that more and more. And, it, and this is what's interesting about China, you know, working outside of their own borders rather than in China. You know, China has built its own high-speed railway incredibly quickly. It literally, they've literally built the, the largest high-speed system in the entire world in the space of 10 years. Um, but the reason they were able to do that at home was because they can do whatever they want at home. Now they're working in other countries, and those other countries sort of have demands. And I think that China is learning that um, you know, to make this project work, they're going to have to accede to those demands to some degree. Now, of course, they can also negotiate away some of those demands with some of those governments, um, and that is happening in certain instances. But, um, but it's been interesting to see them kind of evolve their thinking and their tactics as they have sort of gone out into the world and, uh, and, and really met the world face-to-face. And, of course, the more they do, I mean, the more they're creating, and you touched on this before, creating whole new markets for themselves. Yeah, well, I, you know, that's to me one of the most interesting things about a project like the railway running through Southeast Asia. Um, you know, China definitely sees Southeast Asia as one of its primary markets to sell to. Uh, it's, it's right in its own backyard. It's a, it's a fast-growing region. It's a young region. Um, it's a region with a rising middle class. Um, but, yeah, again, I mean, you know, you take a country like Thailand. Thailand basically is one big city, Bangkok, um, and everybody moves there. And so it's a kind of overwhelmed city. And I think that China would hope to sort of urbanize more of Thailand because when you urbanize an area, you turn farmers into city dwellers and city dwellers consume more than farmers. And who do they consume from? Well, probably China. Um, and so it's not, I wouldn't say it's a primary objective of One Belt, One Road because it's sort of theoretical and it's, it's probably not going to make a big enough impact to really be, you know, um, a game changer. But I do think that by creating new markets and creating new urban areas, um, you do, you, you kind of, you change the entire economic dynamic of a region and, and that change, the change to that dynamic benefits China directly. 
Talk a little bit about the management of all of this from Beijing. And, and given that this is just one part of so much Chinese engagement all over the world. Well, it's funny that you say the management from Beijing because I don't think that One Belt, One Road is as centralized as a lot of people see it to be. So definitely the kind of overall directive comes from Beijing, right? Like Beijing has put this you know, idea in place and they said, this is how we're going to build. This is how we're going to sort of develop the world. But a lot of the One Belt, One Road projects um, are sort of managed on a, a more regional level. Um, in China, there, you know, provinces have a lot of autonomy, um, and, and local leaders in those provinces have a lot of autonomy. And China almost kind of manages those local leaders in a way that you, you might imagine it like a corporation where they can sort of compete um, and rise up through the ranks of the Communist Party. So if, you know, a provincial leader in, uh, in Yunnan province has, um, you know, is in charge of a particular one belt, one road project, he wants to execute it really well so that he'll get noticed and maybe he'll be, you know, promoted, quote unquote. Um, so, you know, it's not as central as everybody thinks. And I think that's part of the decentralization is part of why you, is why some of these one belt, one road projects are so surreal because when you have decentralization, sometimes the coordination isn't there. And so you'll have like, for instance, you know, two parallel uh, railroad tracks running right beside each other going to the same place. And it's because, you know, maybe two different leaders um, were both trying to build the same project in some way. Um, you know, and that's all kind of China understands that and those kind of, you know, odd accidents are baked into the budget. Um, but yeah, I think, you know, it's, it's, it, it, it really, China is a huge country, and that decentralization, uh, I think, is almost necessary because with a project of this size, it would be really hard for the entire thing to be managed from Beijing. And I think that um, the Beijing knows that, and they're okay with, you know, giving up some control to to more, you know, local authorities. It's also part of just the unend, what seems like the unending political expansion of China in terms of its efforts in Africa, its efforts in South America, all over the world, essentially. Yeah, I mean, you know, a lot of these projects, they're kind of emanating from China physically, um, like this railroad in Southeast Asia certainly connects directly to China. Um, but a lot of one belt, one road projects are nowhere near China and don't actually have like a direct link, physical link to China at the moment. So yeah, as you mentioned, I mean, China has been doing a lot of development in Africa. Um, Africa is a, a continent where China has uh, a, a longstanding roots, actually. Um, you know, Chairman Mao built a, uh, a, a railway for Tanzania um, back in the you know, mid-20th century, and he built it back when China was a third-world country just like Tanzania, and he sort of did it as a diplomatic effort. He even framed it when, you know, he, he presided over the, ground, the groundbreaking of the railway, and he, he said something like, you know, you're a poor country and so are we, but we are willing to forgo railway building for ourselves so that we can build this railway for you instead. And, you know, that was a time when China really had very few friends in the world. And that was, you know, even back then, its way of reaching out to other countries. So, you know, to some degree, it's okay with China, if not all these projects physically link up with China, because again, it's not really about, you know, actual transportation a lot of the time. Um, if 
China is building a railway in Kenya, um, that could be a diplomatic effort, or it could be a way of trapping Kenya in some sort of debt where it has to, you know, support China on a political goal. Um, I'm not saying that the Kenya railway is either one of those specifically, but I think that, you know, it's, it's a mistake to think of all these uh, projects as, as having to actually funnel, you know, people or goods or energy back to China. That's not necessarily the case. Sometimes they really are kind of free-floating projects that um, China is scattering out into the world with different long-term goals. And, and finally, how prepared is China to handle pushback from some of these countries, even with respect to the Southeast Asia project? Um, I think that they're, I think that they're handling it. You know, I mean, some of these countries, even though they are much smaller and and less powerful than China have been very good at pushing back. So, you know, if you take Thailand, I mean, Thailand's basically been giving China the runaround on this railway ever since it was first conceived. Um, you know, Thailand at the moment is run by this military government that's been in power since 2014. Um, and honestly, Thailand doesn't really need this railway. Uh, the, the project doesn't make a whole lot of sense for Thailand when you think about it. But at the same time, you know, the Thai government doesn't just want to say to China, take a hike. Um, so instead, what they're doing is kind of stalling for time and, you know, signing agreements and memoranda of understanding and saying, oh, yeah, we're going to do this project. And they have a ceremonial groundbreaking and then nothing happens. Um, and so that's one way of pushing back. And, uh, you know, you, I think it's pretty rare where you see a smaller less powerful country than China really explicitly push back and say, no, like get out of our backyard. Um, there's a lot more kind of tactful, you know, uh, diplomatic kind of maneuvering. And again, you know, you have to, I think that it's, it's, it's easy to assume that China is forcing these projects on a lot of these, on a lot of these countries, but that's often not the case. I mean, many of these countries are very excited for all this China and Chinese investment. Um, they've never had a country that's this interested in investing in them before. Um, they want to take advantage of it um, while at the same time sort of mitigating Chinese influence, but they still want that Chinese cash um, or that Chinese technical expertise. Um, so, you know, when you, when you think about all these countries trying to strike that balance, Yes, on one hand, they fear China and they fear this kind of heavy hand reaching into their country um, and a bunch of people coming in and kicking up a lot of dust. But at the same time, they, they're really looking forward to having, say, a high-speed rail system, uh, which they, you know, they wouldn't have built on their own. Um, so I think the relationships are, are a lot more complex and um, overall a decent job of navigating them with many, many exceptions. Will Doig, his book is High Speed Empire, Chinese Expansion and the Future of Southeast Asia, just out from Columbia Global Reports. Will, I thank you so much for spending time with us here on Radio Who, What, Why. Thank you for having me. Thank you. And thank you for listening and for joining us here on Radio Who, What, Why. I hope you join us next week for another Radio Who, What, Why podcast. I'm Jeff Sheckman. If you like this podcast, please feel free to share and help others find it by rating and reviewing it on iTunes. You can also support this podcast and all the work we do by going to whowhatwhy.org forward slash donate.